Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. And as I always tell you, we're not going to get on the whole thing about what corn prices are. We're not going to discuss the weather, although I'll tell you that right now we're getting some much unneeded rain here in northeastern Indiana out my office window. Got a wonderful guest. This guy's a sharp dude. And he's a young guy. You might notice here lately, I'm getting these young agricultural people on my show. Last episode was the person who rents my land, a 30-year-old dairyman named Johan was my last guest because June, after all, is Dairy Month. So this guest is Brandon Whiff. Brandon and I met three years ago. I was the speaker for the South Dakota Soybean Association. Brandon was on the South Dakota Soybean Association board for about a year when we met, and I did my presentation, was hanging out, it's evening, there you are in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I get the sense that Brandon's kind of a wild guy, I mean, kind of crazy, he wanted to get out and party it up, and by wild and crazy, I mean that he wanted to go to Sioux Falls Cigar Bar. And that's great because I like cigars and he likes cigars. So we went and had a couple of adult beverages and smoked a cigar and got to chat and catch up. So Brandon Whip is my guest. He's a South Dakota farmer, farms several thousand acres with his family. He also is a member of the South Dakota Soybean Association, and he's recently been uh, now appointed to the board of the American Soybean Association. So we're going to talk about soybeans, technology, the future, trade, technology, the farm bill. We've got all kinds of stuff. Welcome to the show, Brandon Whip. Hey, Damien, it's great to be with you. You know, what you call smoking a cigar, I, I say we were out supporting agriculture, don't you? I would say absolutely. If we hadn't, think of this, there's some poor person in Honduras or the Dominican Republic that relies on us buying $7 cigars and enjoying them in Sioux Falls in the dead of winter. So yes, we absolutely did the right thing. And then, of course, I drank a couple of Coors Banquets, as I try to do every chance I get, and, and that's supporting the grain farmers and the house people. So Brandon, here's the deal. I've touted you. I'm going to tell my listeners here on the business of agriculture, he probably every year does about 1,200 acres of soybeans. He's in Huron, South Dakota, but his actual farm is in Doland, South Dakota, He's a sharp guy. He's a 32-year-old man with an engineering degree. He plays musical instruments for the fun of it on the side. He's married to a woman that's an engineer with the Department of Energy. And uh, she was a former Air Force officer as well. So, Brandon Whip, let's talk about you. What else did I miss there on expanding your background? Uh, what else do I, did I not know? Well, boy, you know, as a topic of discussion, me personally, it's going to be pretty dreary and dreadful. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just a run-of-the-mill farmer from South Dakota. Out here, we, uh, we're certainly in a different world than you are in Indiana. In fact, I can share that we're running a little short of moisture in my part of the state. The southeastern part of the state has been inundated with too much rain, and uh, we're just barely getting along, if, if not maybe running a little short of moisture right now. So if you could send some of that excess my way, I'd really appreciate it. Got four and a half inches of rain here at my farm last week between Monday and Saturday. And like I said, it's raining right now. We don't really need this. My property, most of it is in wheat because it's going to get bailed in for straw for the dairyman that farms my land. And it's going to get turned into alfalfa ground. Uh, wheat doesn't really need a lot of moisture right now at the end of June because we'd like to be harvesting that stuff here in another couple of weeks. So I'm free yes. mold. Um, Let's talk about what happens there in South Dakota. First off, you as a farm guy, 
first off, and I think I speak for everybody in Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, uh, you know, why don't you people just stick with flax up there? I mean, why don't you just let the soybean growing happen here? If I want to charge a good amount of cash rent, I need soybean farmers here making money, and they can't do that when you South Dakotans are trying to grow crops you never historically grew. Well, you know, the the genetics that have that, that I the genetic changes in the crops that I've seen just in my 10 years in farming in corn and soybeans and really the wheat varieties as well we are able to just survive the kind of drought and the type of tough conditions that when my dad was my age he would have been zeroed out already this year I'll tell you his corn would have been zero and I've still got a very nice looking stand of corn and if we catch some rains and with a little luck I'll still have a harvest um, and, and so it has, it has pulled areas of the country into production that uh, maybe used to be uh, traditionally more wheat country or sunflowers or things flax, like that. Flax. I want flax. You to flax. Well, I'm sorry, Damien, but it's a changing world and we all have to reinvent ourselves as, uh, as you tell us uh, more than anybody. Yeah, that's true. And here's the thing I would like to point out that our non-ag friends should be told, uh, and if you're listening to this show, Every now and again, pass this on to your non-ag people. Great example right there. Parts of the country are able to grow something that's more profitable, that's more productive, that has, let's face it, who do you even know that eats anything made with flax? I guess that flax oil is coming back. But because of genetics, because of science, because of innovation, we now are growing crops in parts of the world that we're not able to do so. And that's what's gonna be our key to feeding the poor people in places like Bangladesh, where they finally are gonna have genetics that make a crop where there never was one. Speaking of such things as genetics and outlook and reinventing, your outlook as a farmer, give it to me. 2018, what do you got going on, Brandon? Well, you know, farmers always have to be very optimistic about the future and where things are going. Um, I'm 32 years old, so I find myself kind of on the bubble. Does that make me a millennial or am I a gen, I don't know, whatever letter they assign to me, but uh, you know, Millennial sometimes is used as a pejorative term, but one of the positive things about millennials is we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves because on our own, we, we just can't accomplish that much. And that's what I love about agriculture. Uh, I've spent the last several years getting to know people from all over the country and indeed all over the world. And we all sort of share the same outlook that uh, we are part of something very important, number one, to a, to a modern society, and that is a, a secure food system, and, and that the opportunities uh, for the future are really only limited by our own imagination. Well, you bring me to one of my questions. Your outlook as a young guy, pretty worldly, you travel around with the Soybean Association. I think I saw on social media you were in foreign countries here uh, not too long ago. That's true. Where are the opportunities in agriculture moving forward? Well, as I look across the world, I see, and, and you know, we'll talk about trade at some point here, I'm guessing, and you know, China is, is the big ticket uh, trade discussion right now. Their middle class basically outnumbers our entire population, but that's just one country. There are hundreds of millions of people in this world that are poised to move out of abject poverty and into a financial position where they can begin to add protein and oil to their diet. Now, I see what is probably the biggest economic opportunity that has ever faced farmers anywhere in the world. And I think we need to be ready for that. 
we need to be uh, constantly working to make sure we're developing that and coming along and partnering with these developing countries so that we can turn them into paying customers down the road. One thing that I point out, agriculture came uh, just absolutely was in love with this uh, statement, a motto, if you will, a few years ago, feed the nine, feed the nine. And the guys at Atlanco Animal Health, uh, their, their CEO just loves the whole thing, feed the nine. And what you want to tell them, and I have done so, is this idea that we're going to get to nine or 10 billion people on the planet, I don't believe is going to happen because the more affluent a culture becomes, the less they breed. Uh, we, we know what's happened in Western Europe. We know that in America, were it not for immigration, legal or illegal, we would have a negative birth rate. We're not breeding. Well, that's what happens when people live higher on the hog. You don't have any children. I don't have any children. And those that we hang around with mostly have one or two. They don't have seven or eight. We don't need to worry that there's going to be no customers to feed because while there may not, I predict we will not get to nine or 10 billion. I predict that we just flat out won't. We're at seven and a half billion now. I think we're going to hang here under eight billion. I don't think we get to nine or 10. But those customers are going to eat better. In India, we love to hear about China. My God, you can't pick up a paper or log on to any website without hearing about China. India is right there with about 100 million less people than China, and they are doing better every day with more money to spend on food. So I agree with you about this opportunity. Is the opportunity in North America just being a farmer? I think not. I think there's a lot of other things, value-added food creation. Absolutely. You know, for the North American farmer, you need to be looking to diversify, and that means different things to different people. Some people just want to be in agriculture, so they're going to look to do value add. They're either going to start walking their grain off the farm in the form of animals, um, or they're going to look to produce some sort of value added product with, with what they grow. Um, ultimately, I think uh, as business people, we need to be honest with ourselves, take a hard look at our balance sheet and see, are we uh, too long in any one particular area at the expense of maybe other opportunities? Uh, agriculture is great, but I don't think we should treat it as the end-all, be-all of wealth generation. I think it should be a big part of the story, for sure. But you know, uh, I like what you just said right there, Brandon, because we know that there was a time in this country and our agricultural evolution that you were diversified. You had uh, you milked some cows. You had a hog operation down the road. You fed some brood cows back in that back 60 acres that was uh, rough, and then you also were a grain and hay producer and then maybe even maybe even uh, mom worked in town uh, you know at the as a secretary at the school and uh, that of course has changed when you've got more intensive large-scale operations that are tend to be more focused and the problem with that is one huge decline in whatever your your one focus happens to be can really set you back yes yeah you know people and I alluded to this earlier, you have to be honest with yourself. So if you're in production agriculture, but you're using all of your cash flow to make land payments, let's say, you're not really in production agriculture. You're a real estate investor. The production agriculture is just kind of paying the bills, so to speak. Or if you're in production. It's just giving you the cash flow to, to buy the real estate. When yeah. You, when you look at your week, there's a lot of folks that are listening to this are in the business of agriculture, but I have some non-ag folks that listen to it. And I try and tell these people, I say, you know, like when I live wintertime in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, many of my friends would come over and sit on the back porch and have an adult beverage. And I say, you realize these people we're talking about have millions of dollars of capital at risk and they are business people. 
hence the show, The Business of Agriculture. Yes. What's your week look like? My week? Well, I'll say, I'll, I'll start with my Monday morning. I, I get up, my wife and I both get up at uh, 4.55 a.m. every day. Oh, we start. Wait, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't even like to hear that. Okay, go ahead. Oh, well, I'm sorry, yes. 4.55 a.m., uh, the rationale is that we both want to make sure we get a workout in. It'll be 30 or 40 minutes. We tried other times of the day, and quite frankly, with farming, you never know what your day is going to turn out like. Some days I'm home at 6 p.m. Some days I'm home by 2 p.m., and it's just different every day for me. Hers is a little more predictable, but we can both start our day at the same time. And I think uh, you'll find as you – this it's it's a habit that I adopted from a lot of the successful people that I met. None of them get up at you know nine ten o'clock in the morning. They are all up so early that it makes you miserable. But I tell you what, they're beating you to breakfast. I actually am not an early riser by nature. I've gotten to be an early riser more so, and by early for me, I mean seven thirty. Uh, but uh, no, I, I normally would not be a, an early riser. And I do point out what time you wake up is insignificant. It's what you do with your hours because you've got to look at your hours as investments that really matter. So you're up at five, you work out. Then you're at your desk and you probably look at your numbers and you try and figure out what's going on with the grain markets. Yeah, you know, I'll look at the grain markets for sure. Uh, I also want to, I, I have the business news um, usually on the TV on mute so I can get a feel for where the broader economy is going. Uh, because agriculture, at the end of the day, we've hitched our wagon to uh, society in general. And as they do well, we do well. So I always want to have my finger on the pulse of what's going on there. I think that's one of your, one of your good habits that I try and tell my audiences when I do my speaking engagements. You know, I get it that you're in agriculture and you get the Indiana Prairie Farmer and you keep up with what Successful Farming's website says. But every now and again, you need to discipline yourself to look at the big picture. And some of what I do in my presentations is giving that dose of big picture. Hey, did you see this article? Hey, did, and try and bring that out. Because as you said, we're such a, a small part of the population. It's good to have your handle on and, and what else is happening out there. Where do you spend your time? What's the most of your time doing? Uh, well, learning. If I'm, if I'm going to be quite frank with it. It doesn't matter whether I'm up at the farm working with my hands or if I'm sitting at my desk reading. I never stop learning. And I think that's the true value of education. I don't care what that education is. If it's high school, if it's tech school, if it's college, it doesn't matter. What they're teaching you there, you will forget pretty quickly what they teach you. They are teaching you about an appreciation for learning and appreciation for how many things in this world you know nothing about. And I think that is really, when you think about it, what's most important. You have to never stop learning. Who makes the decisions on money, buying, selling at Whipf Grain Farms? You, your father and mother, or split? It's split. Uh, my father's been very gracious in terms of letting me influence the direction of the farm. Um, I think he and my grandfather both recognize that the opportunities that were available to them in terms of purchasing land, like when my dad was my age, he says the price that he bought land for and says, you could pencil that out, Brandon. And these days you just, it, the price is at a point where they don't view that as my opportunity. My opportunity is in uh, changing some management decisions and, and trying to pivot the farm, you know, for success 
10, 20, 30 years down the road. And so they've been very gracious in, in turning over the reins. There hasn't been that power struggle that some, uh, some farm families have. Had a great guest on. If you're listening to this and you want to know where this can go, go back about uh, to episode 20 or so. I had Jolene Brown on, who is a speaker like me for ag groups, and she's also tremendously involved in succession planning. And if you're listening to this and you're listening to my discussion with Brandon Whip, and you say, man, I need to do some of that also, because we tend to have family involved in these operations, and you need to make sure that you don't end up with a blow up so that the family never gets along over these sorts of succession plans. Brand, if you had four more hours in your week, where would you invest it? I would read. It's been, it's a dying art these days. You know, read a book people. I have learned so much from that. You know, these days we are generating so much information via social media and stuff like that. I read that every two days or three days, we generate more information than mankind did in the first 10,000 years of civilization. And you can't possibly keep up with all that. But if you can sit down in quiet with a book and try to glean something from that, I just think it, it, it pays dividends. It really does. I am working on a book that is geared to business owners, small business people. It will be coming out this winter. You will be sure to get an email from me. And I agree with Brandon. You know how sad this is. Because um, again, we talk about the business of agriculture. It is a business. Business people read. Business people look at new ways of doing things. Business people look at what another person has on thoughts and ideas and recommendations and considers you know, involving them in their own operation. And I agree with you. Ag people tend to kind of stay in their echo chamber and, and they really sometimes would help themselves a lot to read a business book, which is why I'm writing one. 14% of Americans buy books and only 10% of those 14% actually read them to fruition. Just sure. That. Yeah. And this might be something you've noticed too. You travel around quite a bit. Uh, I've been traveling a lot more over the last few years. And uh, once you start traveling enough with an airline, they might, you're not going to get upgraded to first class per se, but they'll sit you at, toward the front of steerage to the point where you can uh, observe what people in first class do with their time. I do not see a lot of idle hands up in first class. I'll tell you that right now. I see people playing video games and watching movies more than I would like. I have uh, very little of that. I either am reading the Wall Street Journal or a business publication or a book or on my computer working because I think that's time that, again, you say, oh, I'm killing time. I've never wanted to be one of those people that's on killing time because if it's money, and everybody says time is money, well, if time is money, why would you kill it? You know, it's like you would take a $100 bill out and kill it. All right, let's talk about, by the way, if you just somehow got up and get yourself a Coke and you came back and you're saying, wait a minute, what's going on here? Damian Mason is talking to Brandon Whip. Brandon's 32-year-old farm operator and member of the American Soybean Association Board of Directors. So let's talk about the American Soybean Association. What does ASA do? We're a lobbying organization. Uh, we seek to represent all farmers on issues of policy, and that's uh, it, it's been our mission. We are coming up on our 100th anniversary in in 2020. Would you believe that? Since 1920, we've been doing this. And uh, that's just how long soybeans have been a, a player in the American economy. Started being more of a player after World War II. I know that we certainly didn't have as much need or understand the ability to harvest all of the 
uh, attributes and all the things we could do with them. So really, when did soybeans become big? I'm going to say 1960s is when they really hit their zenith, probably. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I know in our area, it was probably the 70s. My grandpa tells me he was one of the first guys to try soybeans back then at some point. And, you know, he was he, he describes it. He said, you know, you'd have about a four bushel an acre yield. Every once in a while, a weed would come through the combine. And that was your excitement for the day. You know? <laughs> We've come a long ways from then, haven't we? Uh, you have up there. Again, I'd like you guys to just go ahead and return that to uh, cattle grazing land so that my, my tillable ground will be worth more here in Indiana, but it doesn't sound like that's going to happen. Uh, you're not part of the checkoff program. The American Soybean Association, since it actively lobbies, you cannot take monies from the checkoff program and use that for political influence. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, that's in the law. And so that's why a separate organization has to exist. And really... You know, there are so very few lawmakers that come from districts that have agriculture and even fewer of them that understand agriculture. So we're just part of that bridge that agriculture needs to build to our leaders, you know, so that they continue to be able to know what we're up against. Yeah, that's the role I think that they have for you. So I was going to ask you, what do you do within your role? You've been to Washington, D.C. at least once or twice. Yeah. So uh, first and foremost, I have to constantly be talking to farmers uh, so that I can get a feel for where their heads are at because I can't accurately represent them uh, without that information. And then I have to take that to, uh, to our meetings and uh, make sure that we're addressing uh, the biggest concerns, not only that are facing us right now, but we have to have a forward looking, you know, uh, emphasis where we're looking 20 years out and what will the problems there be? And you, and represent, then, yeah. you represent South Dakota. Does That's every, right. Every state of consequential soybean production have representation at the American Soybean Association? That's right. Yes. Uh, some states have more directors than others. It's mainly related to the number of acres or yeah. you know, so the amount Maine, of production they have. The state of Maine is not going to have anybody on the board of directors. The state of Illinois is going to have three. I, yeah, I, I don't believe Maine has a, a, has a director <laughs> on our board. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Challenges facing soybean production. What's out there? We already know weather and we already know we're trade, which we're going to talk about that next. What else is going on in the world of soybeans? Um, well, there's a lot of promise. There's a lot of emerging markets. Uh, like we said, you look demographically across the world, I see a lot of up and coming customers, uh, but they don't find themselves by accident and they're not going to come knocking on our door. We have to go to them. And so one of the biggest challenges we have is making sure that, you know, farmers are aware that, you know, th these markets exist, but we need to go get them. And then yeah, we need. A, that's a sales job. And I, I think that we've, uh, I think we've got something there with, uh, we have a, a secretary of agriculture that is probably as, uh, I'm as pleased with what he's doing and saying as I've been with any secretary bag that we've had for the last 20 years. Yes. Yeah. Sonny has been uh, excellent and a great and articulate voice. Uh, for the farmer, uh, we're always in trying times, right? And it's just, it's just nice to see a steady hand, uh, you know, at the top of the Department of Agriculture, for sure. And we're off about 15 to 17% from where our highs have been on these soybean prices. And again, we don't talk about prices every day on this show because there's so much of that in ag where every, every interview they just talk about. And I, I listen to, uh, Marlon Bowling on rural radio. And I think if I had that man's job, I'd have to start in the morning with a jug of maker's mark, uh, just to go. <laughs> and say, oh boy. Soybeans are up two cents. You see soybeans. Are, oh, and over in the wheat complex, we're off about a penny and a half, five hours of 
of rehearsing and rehashing that the, the wheat market mood by a penny and a half, I would either have to be drunk or just take the nine millimeter out and swallow a bullet. It would make me that nuts. I can't stand this whole market watching thing, but something as significant as a 17% drop is worth talking about. Does the number come back? I say, yes, it does. Uh, yes, obviously what goes down must come up. We can't pay our bills with soybeans. We have to turn them into money at some point. And so uh, we certainly hope we'll be able to turn them into more money than we are able to uh, at the point in time where we're recording this. Well, do you see $10 as, uh, is $10 going to be here in the fall? If we can go back to trading fundamentals, Damien, I think it goes beyond that. Uh, you know, fundamentally, we have fantastic demand all around the world. Um, however, if, if trade concerns begin to, uh, for, for instance, slow economic growth in certain parts of the world, that demand can start to be destroyed. Uh, it's not written in stone that China has to continue to keep their hog barns full. They can start to pull that back, for instance. There's just, there's a lot of things. It's a dynamic situation and where it goes, uh, professionals can't even guess. Uh, but I can guess, and, and you and I are professionals, and I'll tell you that this is a lot of, remember, China does very, very well by keeping a lot of fear in the marketplace, and agriculture plays right into it by running scared for the exits, yelling fire, which we are tends to do more than any other industry, and you know what, $8.95 soybeans are a hell of a lot better than $10.50 soybeans, so I think China likes it right where it is, keep them scared, and then buy the, buy the low. They are extraordinarily shrewd traders, and, uh, and I think uh, in many ways you're right. They, uh, they certainly benefit from a, from a lower soybean price. Um, you know, what the future holds for soybeans, I, I, look, yes, it will come back eventually. Um, I, I remain very optimistic that we can get a trade deal done and that once we do, we'll go back to trading the fundamentals that we see in the world, which is just supply and demand. And, and the story is very good there. I think we're going to be fine. I will say that uh, it's going to get a little rocky and that's fine. These things happen. And I would like agriculture to be willing to stomach it a little bit better because ultimately I believe this will get better for us, which brings me to two things. On Saturday, I was a speaker for RJ O'Brien. That's the clearinghouse for Chicago board of trade. They're introducing brokers were my audience. And I talked about business reinvention with tie-ins to agriculture and I followed a discussion group where they had a uh, trade with quite a the topic and I see things getting heated, but I see them getting better, which brings me to today. In the USA Today, if you're bored, you can go and find this. Of course, it'll be a week old by the time you're hearing this podcast. The U.S. has to stand up to China's abusive trade practices like intellectual property theft and we won't leave farmers to face Chinese bullying alone. Hey. Sonny Perdue, your Secretary of Agriculture, is the person who wrote this article, and he's the one that said that. Donald Trump will protect the American farmers from China's trade retaliation, says Sonny Perdue. And he references in his very first paragraph that seven years ago, Chinese nationals were in Iowa in a field that was owned by one of our genetics companies, a private for-profit company who's investing millions and millions and millions of dollars into advancing the cause of genetic engineering, and the Chinese are out stealing it. That's how they've gotten everything. They've stolen it from us. And this article makes a great point about Chinese theft of intellectual property, and it affects agriculture as well. What do you think? You know, I've heard that story too, and uh, corporate espionage, they've, they've certainly been offenders that way. But I would say 
that's not the chief way that they actually end up with our intellectual property. It's through foreign investment in our companies. Okay, well, and, and and that is overseen by the executive branch, and they've they've addressed that just in the last day or two, and where it ends up remains to be seen. But I'm glad to see the administration talking about taking action through CFIUS, uh, they call it, the Committee for Foreign Investments in the United States. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it is being addressed. Certainly, we heard a lot of people when they bought Smithfield, uh, you know, screaming bloody murder, and they weren't screaming bloody murder over the right thing. Uh, I said, you know, it's commerce. We can handle that. The production's still going to happen here. They want to make sure they have supply, obviously. So we talk a lot about China, but I was really interested to read this article. It goes on to talk about the behavior. And, and at this thing I just spoke at on Saturday when they've got this trade panel, somehow even people in the commodity trading business sitting in that room didn't realize that there's a $385 billion trade deficit between us and China. They didn't realize that to go and do business over there as a company, you have to basically forfeit all of your intellectual property. China has been amazingly good at pushing their agenda, and we have rolled over and rolled over and rolled over. It's my personal opinion that this is a good thing that we're finally standing up to them. You know, it's a global marketplace. Yeah, we want your business, but we also aren't going to roll over. I don't understand why we've been so willing to do so. Yeah, you know, trade deficits been something that's been talked about a lot. I certainly think it's something that should be addressed. I don't think it's as good of an indicator of, you know, economic success or failure, whether we look, we're, we're at the top of the heap in terms of, uh, you know, wealth in this country. We're naturally going to have trade, you know, deficits with other countries because we want the cheap stuff. I'm very interested in how people vote with their dollars in this country. And at the end of the day, they go to Walmart and they load their cart up with the cheap stuff. You know, yeah, there's, there's no question that us having a trade imbalance is going to always exist because we want $9.99 uh, swimsuits and T-shirts. Uh, that's right. And that's going to happen that way. But I, I think that us, uh, food and agriculture always gets used as, it's, as a weapon. And our real problem is not with Canada. Our real problem is not with Mexico. Mexico buys a lot of broilers and a lot of pork and a lot of corn off of us. But I don't think that we were getting the best deal on all these things. And I can tell you that Canada dumping stuff, uh, you know, all countries look out for their best interests. I actually believe that we will end up with better arrangements. It's just going to be a little bit of turmoil. And I guess what well, this article says that we will not, he, he does say, Sonny Purdue does say that uh, in the meantime, President has instructed me to craft a strategy to support our farmers in the face of retaliatory tariffs at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We have tools at our disposal to support farmers faced with losses that might occur due to downturns in commodities markets. He is not revealing the strategy because he says it's not a good practice to open our playbook while the opposing team is watching. I would like the people of agriculture to realize, even if it gets sticky, and I think it's going to get not nearly as sticky as the media has overblown it, we are not going to end up uh, looking at foreclosures out here in farmland. Sure. And I remember hearing uh, Sonny Purdue speak at Commodity Classic, which was this winter in California, and, and he said something that stuck with me. At the end of the day, the farmer would prefer uh, a paycheck for their honest hard work. We would rather just sell our beans at a profit than to need some sort of government intervention. Now, in the short term, if that's necessary, uh, Certainly look forward to seeing what that looks like. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts. Now, one thing that we should mention, I, I feel like we would have such a stronger negotiating position with all of these countries that you've mentioned if, if we were part of 
TPP. And I think early on in this presidency, when we pulled out of it, it was just, it just was not a move that I was in favor of. And really both of the candidates in the last election, as you recall, were, were basically going to ax this thing. And I think either administration uh, would have put a loss in the column real early uh, by pulling out a TPP. Yeah, both both candidates, uh, it was going to be dead in the water no matter what. I ultimately see some of that coming back. It's already been floated around. Uh, I'd say that one year from now, our trade picture is going to look a lot different. I think we're going to have everything redone on NAFTA. I think as part of us getting NAFTA done, uh, part of dairy quota and poultry quota is going to go away in Canada, and the, their government is going to end up having to bite some of that and eat some of it. And I know that mm-hmm. Canadians listen to my show, and they're saying, what are you talking about? Quota's going to go away. I think it's going to end up being a condition of NAFTA. Maybe it gets phased out over 10 years. And the tea leaves, you know the old thing about read the tea leaves? Western Europe got rid of its quota system about over the last 10 years. So I think there's going to be something there. I think the China thing is going to come around, and we're going to end up in a, in a fine situation there. I think parts of TPP, remember, we've already got, uh, if, you get, if you get Japan, you know, this is the other thing about China. China doesn't open to beef. China is not open to any of these things. So this idea that we're hurting ourselves by standing up to them, I don't agree with that. We've been hurt by them dictating to us how things are going to be. Now, I get it. They're a big customer. But it's a world stage. Our soybeans aren't going to sit along the Mississippi and rot. They will go somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think there are things that have to be addressed in trade. I would have liked to see us as, as part of TPP, for instance. I, I picture it like a bar fight. You got two big hulking... Indiana corn-fed football player type of guys that want to go at it at each other. Well, at the end of that fight, the situation will be resolved. There will be a winner. There will be a loser. But in between now and then, both of them are going to have to get punched in the head an awful lot. Now, if one of those guys had a group of friends with them, those friends don't have to be big guys. It's almost like a hockey team. You got one enforcer, and then you got a bunch of specialists that do their thing. Uh, that fight probably never even exists. The situation's resolved with the added benefit of no head trauma. So I, I would like to see us sit back down and look at TPP. They've left an open slot for us there. We could sit down and basically sign that thing. The, the Canada dairy issue is addressed there. There was a, such a huge long list of tariffs that went to zero the minute we put pen to paper on that. And we just didn't do it. And I, I would like this president to take a look at that deal. And, you know, I'm sure he'll have critiques of it. It's not perfect by any means, but I think, uh, I think a deal maker president uh, could do a great deal of work with TPP that already exists. That's just, that's my opinion. And uh, I might be wrong, but that's, that's where I'm at. Actually, I, I read an article about three weeks ago that talked about TPP being back on the bargaining table. So I probably would see it coming around. In fact, I think that it will probably come back around and maybe with a few adjustments and nuances. I had so much prepared, ladies and gentlemen, because Brandon Whip and I sat for several hours in a cigar bar in Sioux Falls three years ago and talked about business and life and the business of agriculture, which is why he's on here as my guest. Brandon Whip with the American Soybean Association, with the South Dakota Soybean Association, and as a farmer from Dolan, South Dakota. I'm going to have him back because we've got plenty of good stuff to cover, but I don't want to eat up your entire day. So we're going to close out, as we always do, with a couple of final thoughts. You are a smart guy. You're a young professional in the business of agriculture. What's one thought, one lesson, one thing you've learned just in your 32 years of making your way in this business? Something that you would tell these people that listen that are in the business of agriculture? Something they can benefit from? One piece of advice or lesson? Well, I would say, 
comparing yourself to others. There is a healthy way to do this, and there is a very deeply unhealthy way to do it. Compare yourself to other people who are already succeeding at something that you would like to do, and try to learn from them and see what you might be able to improve about yourself or your situation, uh, you know, and learn from them that way. The negative way that a lot of farmers, I find myself falling into this, if you compare yourself to others just of what they have and what I don't, and, and you can come up with all kinds of excuses and all this stuff, it doesn't benefit you as a person. It's not going to benefit your business. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, Damien. You compare yourself to others, you will lose, period. You know, if you, if you compare in the negative way. Always use examples of successful people in a positive way. You know, I, I think that's tremendous. That might be the best closing advice that I've ever had any of my guests give. Not that they don't all give good advice, but the reason I like that is we know that in agriculture, we tend to be in rural areas. We know that there's the gossip factor that happens in rural areas, and it's always this thing about who. And I, I the only Democrat I'll ever quote, of course, is Franklin Delano Roosevelt's wife, Eleanor, who said, great minds talk about ideas, mediocre minds discuss events, little minds discuss people. And yes. I, I think that if you're, with, uh, if you're with your peers and it's all who, 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 instead of how or why or what, then you're really elevating yourself. I agree with you. Don't mimic people because they drive a big Kenworth or because they have the biggest combine. But what you're saying is look at the habits that they have and what can you do, can you learn from someone else, compare yourself and say, that person has a really good habit. Waking up at 4.55 a.m. and working out with his wife, for instance. Maybe that's a habit I need to involve myself in, but I'm going to stick with getting up about 7, 7.30. And that's fine, Damien. Yeah, and I would just say, read a business book. Don't read the Platt book. That is poison. You're just comparing. You're just saying, well, what does every other farmer have? And that's just not healthy. Brandon Whipf, smart guy, farm guy, agricultural guy, American Soybean Association board member, also South Dakota Soybean Association. He's a friend of the show. I'm going to make sure he comes back. And I loved his last, his last put there. Read a business book. Don't read the plant book. And I'll have a business book for you to read in another six months. Thank you very much, Brandon Whip, And thank you for listening to the business of agriculture. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Till next time. See you.